wanted to kick this off with uh, a message that thanks to uh, some recent events, I believe we're facing the largest humanitarian effort uh, the United States has ever been a part of. Um, as cryptocurrencies, um, Bitcoin included, have been cut off from the um, China's digital yuan, um, everybody essentially holding these other currencies in their home country uh, may have been under attack where they can't actually store any of their tangible assets to a um, monetary value. And uh, this is critical as, as we move into the future then, how can, the, how can we help these people hang on to the value of their assets um, based on our digital um, dollars economy? Um, which is huge and, and this is way beyond me and uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything um, but stay tuned for for the rest of this episode as we'll dive deeper into the United States previous take on this um, but most importantly um, I want to highlight circle as potentially being the United States digital dollar and with them only taking three cryptocurrencies in the form of Ether, um, Ethereum's token, uh, Algorand and their token, as well as Stellar's nonprofit token, um, all three of those being um, the tokens that can actually access uh, the United States dollar. Uh, if anybody out there is listening and they are not in the United States, please be sure to transfer your currencies and hold those natively on their own token um, or on their own blockchain and transition them into the United States digital dollar. Uh, it is the only way that you will be secure in being able to take place into these new economies of the future. So with that being said, let's start to dig in. Welcome to Intangible Technologies, where we leverage cutting edge technologies and thinking to help you and your business harness the unseen elements technology to better prepare yourself for the future enable incredible social change, and ensure that your business is prepared for anything yet to come. So David, I'm, I'm like a huge nerd. So Jay and I tried to do the first podcast. I had spent days trying to get this super advanced setup up and going. And as soon as we went to record, none of it worked. So I'm trying to learn from my past mistakes here. Of course. Yeah. So great to meet you. Um, pretty thankful uh, I was able to get connected, uh, connected to you mainly just because like I think for me, and I, I don't want to speak for Jay, but it's like, especially where Jay and I grew up is very much kind of the tech is evil type of place. Um, I guess that would maybe be the best way of saying it. But it's like, I think my goal really kind of with all of this is more like how, how do we kind of talk about things in the way that need talked about in order to actually kind of move things forward, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, especially just as it relates to so much of this technical stuff. Um, it's like, how does the innovation and the technology actually move forward? But like, what are the consequences and all of everything? Um, 
And it's like, how do we basically not become China? <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we are here. I, I think for me, I'm kind of juggling a lot of different pieces right now, but ultimately looking at like, am I going out doing my own startup? Like, where am I actually, you know, looking to build and assembling that team to kind of go build something, but at the same time, also partnering with, um, basically businesses of all sizes to kind of rethink or think through how they can transform themselves, um, given all of this digitalness or whatever we want to call it. <laughs> gotcha. So. Yeah, that was amazing. An exciting time to be building something and thinking about building something because the infrastructures surrounding particularly the startup world are just experiencing absolutely astronomical change you know the, the exodus from the bay is like happening right like it's a massive shift in you know the feeling before was if you want to operate in this space you want to be on the cutting edge you have to just bear the burden of being in the bay that's not going to happen you know within a year it'll go from it being a mandated requirement of participation to being sort of odd like why are why are you so inefficient that you felt the need to come and spend four thousand dollars a month in rent when we can all meet virtually whenever we want at the click of a mouse yeah no I, absolutely and i i think now you're gonna start seeing that talent like i mean these are the people who built up those stem skills to really drive change and i i think like what i've experienced kind of firsthand is inside of these large organizations um they don't set themselves up to really innovate or they, they may have an innovative product or service they put out, but they're not actually kind of reinventing the way they fundamentally conduct business. And I, I think we're at a tipping point here where, um, especially with all those tech acquisitions and, you know, what, what actually is the value of some of those technologies? Um, and it's something I've been really digging into this week is, you know, and really where the name Intangible Tech comes from is, they're intangible assets. And when we look at how we put money and kind of dollar signs behind them, um, it's rudimentary almost um, with some of these finance models. And it, it assumes really that everything either trends the same way um, and kind of continues on how it does, but it doesn't take into consideration, you know, what actually is that ROI on any investment. Um, and really like, even looking at cloud, I mean, cloud's biggest innovation really was, it's now an operating cost. Like you, you don't have to build eight months of servers in a back room and offset that over years. You, it's, it's just there. Um, and I think as you see these startups, it's um, an interesting, interesting kind of study, but it called the aggregation theory, but it looks at the different layers of technology innovation and cloud, cloud just allowed some of those innovations to get distributed. Um, but with a lot of that code and a lot of, let's say, the actual intangible pieces of a business, a lot of them are just open source. Or anybody can go out there and they're essentially just, who wants to go and put the Lego blocks together um, to make it user-friendly enough to then go and sell? But the actual kind of, let's say, you know, what maybe used to be patented 
and kind of protected there in the manufacturing process, it, it no longer exists. Um, and it's that efficiency of scale. It's no longer efficiency of manufacturing, but kind of how quickly can you return, getting the return on your investment, given you're now spending that as an operating cost. That's if that makes sense. Sure. sure. I mean, what, what the advent of connectivity and the evolution of technological culture has, has brought is the iterative process that is inherent in any sort of development can happen much more rapidly when you don't have to go through all of the necessary steps to bring people together in a physical sense yeah. or in a corporate sense, right? So like if you look even 30 years ago, right? So we're going three decades back when you're trying to develop the technology space, you needed to go through a lot of really difficult processes to even get there, right? You needed to have a company, right? You had to have a corporate entity. You had to have a CEO, a CFO, a COO. You had to have managers. You had to hire developers and engineers. You had to do all of these things. And then you started to have the iterative process in-house, even with really cutting edge companies that were developing things that were new, the iterative process was all held inside and so what you're i think what you're talking about what we're seeing in terms of this really rapid just sort of head over heels over head over heels just rolling down the hill of development we're going to call it you know ultimate crash in the bottom i don't know we'll see what happens yeah. is this cultural shift for people who grew up in the iterative process who are trained in this way of working and thinking don't really feel the need to be burdened by like they weren't getting paid the profit of their labor anyway right you're getting paid a salary so who cares you're just developing things because what you know how to do so make it open source right and then all of a sudden the iterative process is being approached by hundreds and thousands of talented people around the world without the constraints of who did what where when why the question is only did it work or did it work better than the last version yeah no, absolutely there. And I, it's been interesting talking to a lot of people in um, the agile community. And it's no matter where you go inside of these large companies, agile never really happens because there's no incentive to actually yield its benefits. And uh, I, I think it does go back to, you know, when a lot of these companies, when they invest in these initiatives, you know, is it that long drawn out kind of amortized, you know, investment where they're they're not used to actually having to show that they're getting a benefit? Is it, you know, it's you're you're planning for maybe a two or three year long investment and you're basically assuming at the end of those two or three years, it will be exactly like it says it is. And the reality is that that doesn't take into consideration anything that's actually happening in market and any learnings that you kind of learn along the way. It's um, very backwards. <laughs> and I, I think how this ties in into our kind of current crisis, it's like, look, you, you have these old companies with real tangible assets, with real you know, value in this real world, but now you're having these companies that essentially have nothing underneath them soaking up even more value and i i think to an extent like those basically how do you weight against that and how do you how do you put them on the same playing field and that's that's ultimately what i'm trying to dig into is really what's a better measurement for those intangibles 
Yeah. So I know Jay's thinking there. Um, no, I, I think for me, though, it's in where it comes into cryptocurrency and where I'm really excited for that space. It's, you know, just watching everything and kind of seeing it and even past couple of days noticing, I would say, a lot more people coming on to, let's say, the crypto forums and asking questions. And it's more around like um, Jay and I talked about, like, how do you derive value from, um, say, Bitcoin or whatnot? And it's interesting when you look at that because Bitcoin and those other currencies, they're amassing of not just U.S. dollars, but also investment from outside the U.S. or any other location. And it's really a, let's say, a real-time sum of everything <laughs> um, that's not just U.S.-based. And I, I think when kind of more traditional finance people look at, say, a Bitcoin or something, they're looking at the supply, they're looking at the demand, and they're treating it as if it's, you know, the only kind of currency within that ecosystem, not that it could actually go elsewhere or receive funding from, say, elsewhere, um, which opens a whole new kind of can of worms with variables at play for pricing. Well, and, and you know, I don't think there, there's very many good examples anymore of finance that is actually insular to a particular nation state. Mm -hmm. um, there are ones that are exclusive of the United States where they don't come here. Um, but more so, if there is something that can be traded, bought, sold, hoarded, speculated upon, the markets are so sophisticated at this point and so developed at this point that there's a way you can participate if you're sophisticated enough to know how to participate in it, whether it's soy or gold or Bitcoin. Um, the question becomes not whether there's a market and where the markets go necessarily, but how does one access the markets mm -hmm. and who should be able to participate in those markets. And that's where we get some of the interesting regulatory distinctions that um, I think led to the series of connections that led to ultimately reaching out to me. So my, a little bit of my background. Yeah. So I'm, I'm an attorney. I'm, I'm a transactional attorney. Unlike Jay Peaks, I did a little bit of searching, you know, as a litigator, like I have, if I'm ever in a courtroom, something's gone horribly wrong, <laughs> right? That should never happen. I should never be in that space, right? So I'm a pencil pusher, corporate lawyer. Um, specifically, my mentor at the first firm I worked at out of school and while I was this summer, I uh, was trained as a securities attorney. Um, so working in capital markets and understanding what is security, what is not a security. And as a very junior associate learning in that space and working in that space, that's when I was first exposed to the question at hand of, you know, are, is Bitcoin a security? Are cryptocurrencies securities? What is a security to begin with? And then how do we apply, you know, that, that test? And, that, that's becoming, I think, part of the, the re-spark of conversation around this is um, things are shaking out the way that securities lawyers said they would. But to take a step back and you know set the foundation for anyone who's entering into the conversation, what is a security? So a security is an investment contract. That's not very helpful. That's an also esoteric uh, expression that doesn't mean anything to anybody who's reasonable. Uh, so an investment contract, the concept of it, legally speaking, comes from a Supreme Court case, SEC v. Howey. 
And so the Howie test is what we got from Howie. So Howie actually has to do with an orange grove, but the facts are not important. The point is that we got this test. So you have an investment of money in um, a, a collective or joint venture um, with an expectation of profit from the efforts of others. So if that's what you have. You have an investment of money into some sort of collective action where you expect to make money on the efforts of someone that's not you. You probably have an investment contract. Therefore, you probably have a security. So to start with a definition, which I think is helpful when we're dealing with these things that are rapidly changing, making sure that we're all using the same word to describe the same thing, that's where security lawyers and the SEC is full of securities lawyers. That's what they're going to be looking for when they're looking for an unregistered security. Interesting. No, so I guess then, like looking at Ripple's case, uh, from your angle, I mean, what what is kind of the why would they go after Ripple versus say a Bitcoin or let's say Ethereum or even another maybe proof of stake currency? Like what what makes Ripple unique? So that's, that's a great question. And to answer the question, I'm going to give some more definitions and rules and structures, not because I particularly like lecturing on, but because it's important to understand how we got there. So we now now all know what a security is, right? So let's use the, the best, truest, purest example of a security, a share, a stock in a company. So you own part of a company. So go back to our definition, right? So it's an investment of money in a collective action with the expectation of profit from the efforts of others. So you bought one share of Apple. Do you work at Apple? Are you doing anything? No. But is Apple a collective action? Yes, it's a company. It's a bunch of people doing something. Did you buy that one stock of Apple because you just love the products? No, you did it with the expectation of profit. So like a, a, a single equity unit is like the truest, purest, easiest example of a security. Now, as of the 30s, following the Great Depression, we then had a series of securities laws passed. There are four big pillars of securities law. And the overarching point of securities law is to protect grandma on Main Street. Because shysty people sold grandma pieces of paper, which were the stock certificates, that were worth nothing. They created companies that had nothing in them and sold them to grandma, and grandma lost everything. We don't like that because we like grandma. She makes cookies. It's a wonderful thing. So laws were passed. And so the general rule when it comes to the sale of securities in the United States of America is that it must be registered federally. That's the rule. Now, there are exceptions to this rule and exemptions from this rule. And there are many of them, and they're very complicated. The important thing is that the baseline is that you have to register unless you fall into one of these other exceptions. Got it? So these are our two steps. One, is there a security? Two, if there is a security, was it registered? No. Oh, well, was there an exemption from registration? Were they allowed to not register? No. We have a problem. SEC is going to get involved. So going to our example here, looking at the uh looking at xrp they decided based on that analysis that people were investing money in what they consider to be a collective enterprise with the expectation of profit from the efforts of others it's a security that was step one 
Step two, did they register the security? They did not. We're in a position where we have a problem, unless there is an exemption. And there was no exemption, right? So what is a very common exemption, one that you often look to to circumvent this? Private placement is an example of an exemption. So in a private placement, you do not offer these securities to the general public. You only offer them to a closed number of private investors. And there's different kinds of private placements. So that's the most common sort of mechanic. So that's why, for example, um, angel investors can exist, right? Um, it's why uh, a tech company is doing their A round. They're not doing their A round as an IPO. Right? An IPO, which for anyone who's listening doesn't know, is an initial public offering. Right? That's where you've gone all the way to the point where you're doing what the general rule says. The general rule says you must register your securities in order to sell them to the public. If you're not selling it to the public, you're selling it to a select number of private investors, that's one of your exemptions. And so when it comes to looking at Ripple and FRB, this was sold to the general public. Anybody could buy it. If you had the cash and you spent the cash, you could buy it. So it was a sale of an unregistered security if you're going through their reasoning. That's the SEC's reasoning if you read their complaint. Hmm. Why do they care? Why do they go after this as opposed to you know, Bitcoin as opposed to something else? Well, so remember the motivation of all of securities law to protect grandma, Main Street investors, protect them. When it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin by its very nature is so decentralized that it's impossible for any individual player to control or manipulate the market, right? We can go, and I'm sure maybe in the first episode you guys went into like what Bitcoin is and how Bitcoin works and the, the nature of it, Toshi and, and, and all of these things. Um, and so anyone who's interested, go back to the previous episode, listen to that, come back again. <laughs> Or do a little bit of Googling and read the Bitcoin white paper, and then we'll be off to speak. So I don't want to spend too much time lecturing. But the issue with Ripple and XRP is that the founders retained a significant stake in XRP and were able to then manipulate the market by placing things in the market or buying things back out of the market based only on information that they had available or that they chose to disclose to the market. So that's one of the big things about registering a security, right? So if you are trading securities publicly, you're a public company, again, we're going to limit our examples to just true equity securities because it's easier for our conversation. We can go into bonds and other things that we're not going to for purposes of our conversation. So if you're a publicly traded company, you have lots of responsibilities. You're coming from two different Securities Acts, the 33 Act, the 34 Act, but the responsibilities, in addition to registering, where when you register your securities and you say, like, what is the underlying security? What is it associated with? So what does your business do? Um, and a few other pieces of information. Then from that point on, you then have the burden of an ongoing reporting um, so responsibility. If anything happens, anything meaningful happens to the company, you have to say something. And even then, you periodically have to say something. Right. You have quarterly reports and annual reports that you have to do. And then if anything happens, you hire a new CEO, you fire a CEO, you enter into a big contract, you sell off one of your subdivisions. You must then disclose this information. Ripple was not doing this because they weren't acting as a public company because they didn't think they were a public company because they didn't register anything because they didn't think they were dealing in securities. 
So that's where we are. So we're concerned about the manipulation of markets and made them a very good target to be an example. So I have a question. It might be incredibly simple, but has there ever been any debate as to whether a cryptocurrency is in fact a security? Because I'm thinking of a situation in which I create a cryptocurrency as a tool and there's no expectation that it grows in value but it then does grow in value because it is a valuable tool and so as a security is defined i set up that crypto with the expectation that it is just used by people but then subsequently because it's used by so many people it then grows in value is there any example of that or is it is that just kind of a once it then starts growing in value and people then start expecting it to grow it then becomes a security thus falling under the applicable laws absolutely because there is a lot of debate around that right and so that was the so if you look at like 2017 you look at the ico boom right so the the argument that people who were selling ICO in initial coin offering for anyone who's new to that idea they were arguing that this wasn't an initial public offering of securities it was a coin offering they were offering utility tokens and it's exactly what you're saying jp is that that these aren't securities because they aren't valuable in of themselves it's not that they're investing in stock with the expectation of future return they're more participating in a kickstarter and they're buying lots of individually useful items that they're going to utilize for a different purpose, not the expectation of profit. And then later, if you know supply and demand dictates that the increase in value, who are we to say that that wouldn't happen? We can't control you know the, the law of, of supply and demand. Um, that's the argument that was made, and it it, it works better with certain fact patterns than with others. So. I think a good example, in my opinion, of something that has essentially held on to being more utility-based than it is on the security side of things is Ether as being necessary to participate on the Ethereum blockchain, right? And so to me, that's a pretty good example of a mature-ish, as mature as anything is in this space, a mature-ish ecosystem that has a technical functional facet to the underlying crypto that then also has a trade effect to it. So there is, it looks a little bit like both, but because it's not being sold to anybody in sort of an en masse sort of like initial offering, that helps it stink less to regulators. Two, it being as decentralized as it is, makes it really look really hard of like who are you going to drop the hammer on from a regulatory standpoint it's hard to uh, put someone in jail if there is no someone and the fact that there is true ongoing utility you need to get ether in order to participate in the ecosystem and so it does have actual utility i think there was another example of uh, what was the one we talked about it in the class yeah. a, a class on on blockchain and the law if you don't mind, I do kind of have a question there, though, and it, sure. it's an interesting concept like with either it's yes, it's transactional on its network is a utility token. But what's kind of unique there is it really only has the value then if it's actually transacting. So say how they have second layer solutions, 
where it's not actually transacting on that network, it's no longer, I guess it really no longer has any value because its value only stems from, you know, being able to transfer into something else. So if it's just stationary, you know, not sitting on, let's just say in an institution's giant wallet that they're distributing to whoever may be purchasing, it's not actually going on the chain and actually reaching its utility value then. It truly would be people just holding it. Um, does that have any consequence? So, yeah, I mean, like that, that, that's when it gets problematic, right? It's when people start to treat things as investments that maybe they weren't intended to be in investments, but they're, when you're looking at it from a legal perspective, some laws have a center sort of component to it. You have to intend something for it to apply. Others do not. Generally, securities laws do not. It doesn't okay. matter what your intention is. What matters is that the law has been broken as written. And so you can stumble into breaking the law when you weren't originally. Um, the one I wanted to point to was uh, the Munchie token. So Munchie, M-U-N-C-H-E-E, was a part of the 2017 sort of ICO boom. And Munchie really was trying to say, like, no, this is a utility token. You can only use it in our ecosystem. Like, it has a very specific technical purpose. And we're letting people pre-order it so that they can use it in our ecosystem in the future. And because they want to support us, this is, we are a Kickstarter. Yeah. This is not a sale of security for purposes of investment. And I mean, spoiler, it, it didn't go well. Um, this did not work out nearly the way that they thought it was going to work out. And it, it, it started giving us the signs in the um, securities regulation space and anybody who who then is counseling people participating in the crypto and blockchain space, we need to tread carefully. We thought we needed to tread carefully, but we know for a fact now that we need to be careful. And unless there are certain parameters in place that technically disallow investment and speculation, we're going to run afoul of this again, right? It's, it's going to be a problem. And so you can, in theory, and this is you know an argument that was had in class, like technically you could limit the way that something is being utilized on chain and the way something is being exchanged between points of holding to limit the capacity for people to speculate on it. And then you'd be in a situation where you have a true utility token, but then you also have to be in a position where it's like, well, why did you develop that? Right. So that's, that's always been kind of like the kicker to it. It's like, no, 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 we meant this just to be utilities. Like, did you? Did you really mean that? Because I don't think you did. I think you meant it to be a way to raise a ton of money and then make a market. So right. legally speaking, has this been tested? Are we dealing purely with advisory opinions from the SEC or has this gotten to court? And have they, have they come up with some sort of balancing test to be like, well, and this is for Dan, uh, like, well, it kind of falls a little bit into both, but we're going to weigh these specific factors to determine whether it falls into this tool bucket or whether it's a um, security. Yeah, has that 
been developed or fleshed out or is this are we still in kind of the wild west of like use best judgment we'll get back to you if it goes terribly wrong yeah well and i guess i mean even on top of that my, my question even goes to like um, the currency exchange in their comments at the the beginning of this year, more for looking at stable coins. And it's like it, you know, we have two separate areas of the government kind of talking about the same underlying technology, but at least different principles, if I'm not mistaken, or they're, they're approaching it from their different lenses. Um, and that I think is something that's also interesting um yeah not answering your question there jay what uh i guess what was the bigger point well, yeah maybe maybe david can take it in terms of adjudicating or deciding whether we fall into whether a crypto is a security has this been taken fully through litigation and we have good precedent or we have good opinions on this or and through that i'm assuming they would come up with some sort of balancing test because i doubt that there's any regulation that can be written so specifically to delineate between the two or i guess the two being security or not a security have we gotten to that point or are we still kind of relying on SEC advisory opinions, or are we in administrative court, or like what's the what's the backbone for deciding that fundamental question of security or not? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a lot of advisory opinions that have come out. You know, certain like the, the CFTC came out and said that like Bitcoin is an asset. It's not a security, right? So that's like one point of like, that's their position on it. But then if you go to um, 2017 and United States of America, SEC, in the matter of Munchie, to go back to the aforementioned Munchie, you know, the Securities Exchange Commission deems it appropriate to cease and desist proceedings be and hereby are instituted pursuant to Section 8A of the Securities Act 1933 against Munchie Inc. So we have. You know, that legal precedent, that complaint at the federal level, cracking down on somebody a little over three years ago. So we have that. And then when it comes to the most recent case and the one that is leading to all this conversation right now, it's SEC v. Ripple. And so it's being litigated at present. Um, yeah. I think. Sorry, just... They filed very recently, like in December, I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, once again, I think Ripple is, this case is the SEC making a stand, right? They're saying like, this is our position and we're going to pursue this via litigation through till adjudication. I mean, they are demanding a jury trial, right? So they're, they're, they're looking yeah. to make law. It seems like at least with Ripple, Ripple's big problem is that it's fully U.S. It's and whereas I know that you just said that Bitcoin has been classified as an asset, but it seems that for future companies looking to poke their toe into the giant sea of crypto, it is a problem for them if they start 
taking steps to make their own crypto and then offer it to the public if they're not at least aware that SEC is taking Ripple as an example because they're incorporated in the United States or have assets in the United States or have some connection here and then they're creating this crypto that can be sent anywhere and so I think that's and correct me if I'm wrong but that's a really interesting point that where if someone just introduces a crypto internationally the SEC really has very little to no ability to use U.S. regulations unless I'm missing that point but no I mean absolutely Civil procedure, right? They have to have minimum contacts, right? Yeah, exactly. You got minimum contacts. You got to have, you know, you got to have subject matter jurisdiction. You got to have personal jurisdiction, right? Like, what, what's preventing someone? Why? I don't know. A company is just creating a subsidiary four or five steps removed from the company in the Virgin Islands or something, and creating their own crypto and introducing it into the public at large and then just saying oh well it's not us it's not us directly we're not in charge of this although we do use it but sec don't come at us because we're removed from it is that an option for companies or is that no. just like no, i mean I would, I would strongly advise anybody who's considering that structure against any sort of behavior in that way because the way that federal law is crafted sorry bro like if you have a wholly owned subsidiary with a wholly owned subsidiary with a wholly owned subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary that's incorporated in the Cayman Islands, sorry, you're, you're, you've got minimum contacts in the United States of America for purposes of the Securities Exchange Commission. What you do see, if you, I mean, you Google it, right? Just like like Google, you know, ICO or participate ICO, and you're going to find uh, Scandinavian countries. Yeah, there's a lot of these. Um, crypto startup companies that are offering ICOs. And if you go to the webpage, um, you know, definitely not investment advice, but just as an academic exercise, go try to register an account to be able to participate. It's going to ask you, do you live in the United States? And you're going to say yes. And it's going to say, sorry, but go away. Because in order to participate, you need to not be in the United States or a citizen of the United States. So they are explicitly precluding, so what I was talking about earlier in the conversation is that you're gonna find markets that exist that explicitly exclude the United States. Um, but once you're in the US and you're dealing with US regulation, it's, you, you just do the whole world because there's really nowhere harder to do business than here. Right. Is that on the front end or is that on the back end? Is that the, say Sweden, is that the Swedish company per their own regulations and laws saying we're not going to even get into that or is that yes it's, it's, like it's a company policy right it's just because the company saying if you want to participate in this offering you need to not be in the u.s because we don't want to deal because we are not going to register we're not going to offer anything in the united states therefore we're saying we do not have to comport with u.s securities laws it's interesting yeah. too then uh, like i know a lot of the kyc or know your customer laws I mean, that, that's where a lot of exchanges focus, and it's, I mean, it, it ultimately comes down to how does the United States have control, or at least have some arm in the game um, for regulation, but ultimately what, you know, what about those currencies that never comply, or 
if, if they're open on the crypto market and you know what is to stop somebody or from an exchange maybe they do buy ripple or bitcoin but then transfer that into an asset that never has intended being in the united states is there any right and once yeah. they're out in the public it's much harder to control and then what you end up getting hammered down on is not necessarily the issuer of the underlying asset and or security you're going to get hammering on the exchanges right, right. so you know there, there are onerous obligations associated with being able to be uh, an exchange so beyond registering security you need to become a registered exchange becoming a registered exchange is a very significant process in terms of filings you need to go through when it comes to pushing pencils and or paper that is a a mountain to be sure um and then you have to think about you know the, the profit incentive of participating in the u.s is so high that if you're going to be a securities exchange and you can do business in the u.s you want to do business in the u.s so where's the upside to include participation in the united states um because if you then have these unregistered securities that the sec doesn't like being exchanged on your exchange that's a problem right so then you have the exchanges that are precluding securities like the ones we described before you know a swedish danish whatever company offering you know a leader coin um being precluded from exchanges thereby limiting liquidity thereby limiting the overall capacity for demand thereby limiting the upside and value of the underlying uh, underlying security when it's off or asset when it's delivered right but what's interesting with that and uh without going into too many details is if you do get into let's say a stable coin um that is based on a blockchain project and you're in that stable coin that stable coin hopefully would be measuring kyc but then they're also able to track then okay what did you purchase with that stable coin being bitcoin ether whatever it may be but ultimately that's tied back to whatever that tethered currency would be am i correct so for us right. law so when it comes yeah. to like an example of like stable coins are interesting and for anyone listening to about stable coin a stable coin is something is is a, a digital token that is pegged to the value of an underlying asset um it doesn't have to be any one particular thing but for purposes of discussion let's say something that is pegged to the value of a dollar so you have one dollar coin and that dollar coin is worth one dollar so if the dollar goes up in value the coin goes up in value the dollar goes down in value the coin goes down in value but that is a significantly less volatile uh state of value than a traditional cryptocurrency which is based solely on supply and demand in terms of establishing its value and so it wildly fluctuates hence the nickname a stable coin a stable coin i think becomes a better example of something that can circumvent being classified as a security because you don't have an expectation of profit in the investment of it nearly to the degree that you do with an equity right you, you purchase a share you expect to have a return of you know minimum you know a couple times your investment at the time you actually sell out of your your, your equity investment you know you just even if you just participate in you know uh, a mutual fund or whatever like you look at your little account you want to see it every year go up by even 12 percent or something like that that's a pretty good return if you're investing in dollars you're not going to see it go up like that right like the dollar stays pretty stable 
Um, and so you start to lose in the, in the Howey test that expectation of profit component. What if a uh, like concept there of um, staking, say staking is applied to your stable coin. So if you had a dollar back stable coin, um, essentially you're be being awarded interest in keeping that money liquid in the market. And that interest, if I'm understanding correctly, that interest comes back to you um, basically in the form of just the benefit for keeping it liquid for use for whatever that institution would be making that liquid behind the scenes. Would that be the right way of thinking through that? It could be. I, I think that you start to, if you get it too complicated in your transactional structure, it muddles the conversation in terms of the classification of the underlying components. Not to say that what you're analyzing isn't useful or a conversation that will need to be had, but I do think that you get to the point where like, so to go back to my own, you know, to counteract my own point, where I talk about, you know, you don't invest in dollars for the anticipation of profit. Well, that's just simply untrue. People do that all the time, right? Like you set up arbitrage setups where people are buying and selling dollars on one side and buying and selling euros on the other side to buy low and sell high. Like you, your your margins are pennies, but you make millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of transactions, profiting pennies and pennies and pennies. All of a sudden billions of pennies or millions of dollars right so like yep. in in that sense they, they you you, you can invest in cash for the expectation of profit um but looking at these things in terms of balancing looking at these things in terms of a continuum that's where you end up with stablecoin being further on the asset side of things than something like a true equity so I want to jump in here real quick and kind of shift a little bit. Moving forward in terms of how the SEC is going to be regulating this in the future, I think about how laws are made in a traditional sense in that the people with the most money have the most influence and they're able to get the laws they want at a level that smaller people just cannot but it seems like startups have the most or are easily most easily able to utilize cryptocurrency in their day-to-day -day business but like i just said I, I feel like legacy companies are sitting there with all the money and able to influence how laws change and so from your perspective as a securities lawyer like how do you see regulation moving forward in terms of how cryptocurrency is regulated is it going to be kind of we've set forth this track and we're going to kind of toe the line there or is there going to be or do you anticipate there being some sort of dramatic shift where laws are now trying to open up the markets more so or is it going to be continued to try to like fit the idea of cryptocurrency within the laws from the early 1930s or so. I, I think that we're going to see clarity sooner rather than later. Um, I, you know, I think that the way that the ripple of litigation shakes out is going to be really enlightening. 
Um, I think that this changing in administrations is going to lead to an opportunity for people who are less concerned about being summarily fired for inadvertently crossing the paths of somebody who didn't want anything to be said, um, which will be really interesting to see how the SEC, what the SEC looks like in six months uh, in switch of administrations. And I, and I think that there's, you know, while it is true and, you know, the cynicism of attending law school shines through you out into your <laughs> statement about how laws are made. But if we look, to look at the, the foundation of, of this conversation is look at the securities laws. Like, true, that was 90 years ago, almost. Um, but those are laws that are onerous for the powers that be. Right. So comprehensive structural regulation and, and statute that is intended to protect the public from those with a higher level of sophistication or access can and will happen. Right. So um, I, I think that for me, there, there's a sense of, of, of optimism. There's a growing uh, literacy because I think that the distinction is going to need to be made um, colloquially. People need to start understanding that not all blockchains necessarily produce cryptocurrencies and not all cryptocurrencies are going to be considered either uh, assets or securities. And so learning how to, you know, how these concepts build on top of one another is going to be really important. Learning to like, to me, the most exciting stuff is going to be happening at the blockchain level, less so at the cryptocurrency level. I think that cryptocurrency is a fascinating use case of blockchain. Um, it's not the be all end all. And, and I think we're it's still in the nation part of the development of the underlying technology, right? So like the, 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 the evolution between HTTPS and the internet was 25 years, right? And Satoshi wrote with the white paper is what, 2011, something like that? Yeah. 20, yeah, 2008. Yeah. Something out there. Yeah, like, so we're, 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 we're in a decade, right? So we're in, within 10 years still. So there's lots of time to see. So if you went to 25 years before the advent of the internet and someone showed you this, like, look at this cool thing, your HTTPS, like, this is such cool code. Like, 40 people on the planet would be like, that's rad code. Little did we know then that every single aspect of our existence, from our refrigerators to our phones that we use to communicate, to the conversations we have with people, to the way we work, would be dominated by this technology. And so I think blockchain is what's most exciting to me, learning more about it, how it's going to be used. I think that cryptocurrencies and digital assets are the fuel that are going to power this development. And so understanding how they're used and what they are is going to be really important. It's going to become clarified in a regulatory sense. So we do have a situation where the industry is out ahead of its skis when it comes to regulation catching up. But that's what happens, right? Look at the internet. We are only kind of sort of catching up to where that has gone. And so if you look at the development of it, it took 25 years, the regulation catching up to it took another you know, 30 years, right? From the early 90s till now is really, you know, within my lifetime, right? I'm 34 years old. So it's been within my lifetime that we are now seeing, you know, wait a second, maybe antitrust laws do apply to the internet, right? Yeah. So it's taking three decades for them to go, hold on, maybe these companies are too big. And like anybody who works in antitrust, if you just told them what, if you explain to them the tech 
and how powerful Google is, they'd go, oh, shit. <laughs> That's a clear violation of antitrust law, right? And so it, it's going to take time. It's not going to be clean. It's going to be really, really messy. Yeah. So I think at the end of all of it, it's going to be pretty exciting. Well, no, no. Well, Go ahead, Jay. To jump in there, is there any hesitancy in terms of how you're counseling clients that, I mean, you and I both know that judges take a long time to understand concepts. Is there any hesitancy where you might get a situation where a company understands the laws to a point where they believe they're in full compliance, but if it's ever challenged, you might get a situation where the ultimate arbitrator fact is is going to be sitting there confused and not really understanding what's going on and going to try to peg them back to a point that's maybe like 15 years before where they are and is that like is that going to slow growth in the area or is it just going to be something where <laughs> where we're just going to move along and everybody try to keep up and there might be some losses along the way, but at the end of the day, it's going to be a tidal wave and you can't stop it or you can't at least right. stop all of it. Stop some. It's almost, how do you flip it to being, um, you know, how do you start to be proactive with this instead of being reactive? And it, it's yeah, like, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah, like, like that, if, when it comes to counseling clients, I'll tell you two things, be proactive and be transparent. Right. So like from the very beginning, if you're trying to develop something in this space, you need to be thinking about how to articulate what you're doing in a way that people who aren't doing what you're doing can understand much earlier than you would if you're working at the cutting edge in a different space. Um, you can go ahead and afford to not have people understand exactly what your you know, back end data processing for purposes of storage algorithm is doing you can wait a long time before you need to explain that to non-industry insiders in this space you can't you need to know how to talk to people about it you need to have your pitch about it you need to be upfront and proactive about contacting regulators and letting them know what you're doing you don't need to go through all of the efforts of getting a, a full formal no action letter necessarily something like that which is the mechanism within the sec where you essentially go most dear is an honor to SEC. I'm going to do this. If I do that, hypothetically speaking, would you come and burn my house down? Um, and they go, unrelated to anybody saying anything, we're going to go ahead and release this thing, saying that if somebody hypothetically did this thing, we would not burn their house down. It's like, okay, great. But like, you don't need to go that far. But if you're constantly thinking, can I register? How should I register? Should I be having conversations with a regulator? You're thinking about it the right way. You're thinking to yourself, I don't know how to explain what I do to my grandma. You're treading in the wrong direction, yeah. right? I'm not saying you need to make sure that grandma understands everything about what you're doing. I'm saying that you need to be able to have that language that if you're asked a question by somebody who is in a position to shut you down, you can answer it in a way that sounds true, one, because it is true, and two, is digestible. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately, too, I mean, this whole industry is about transparency, and it it is allowing this to, you know, be transparent enough to actually have insight into the things we've never had insights into before, but at the same time, still allowing that security aspect to take hold. And I think to me, I mean, that is just why this, it's not just an innovation, it's a true disruption of computer science, 
um, just in terms of how data is actually accessed and stored. Um, you know, it truly is a, a self-updating ledger of accounts. And when you get to that, the, the sheer amount of automation that that introduces to the world is almost staggering to wrap your mind around what its consequences will be. Um, positive outcomes, yes, but at the same time, I, I could almost see it as the entire accounting and finance industry. If, if you're telling them that we're always rule abiding, we're always accurate and transparent now, what's, why do you need an accountant? Why do you need a team of accountants or finance people? You know, you're, you're truly in the real time value of what's actually going on, which is exciting. And just, just hop in. I've, I've got to hop off. David, thanks so much. This was incredibly interesting. Um, but I'll see you guys and, and I hope it continues well. But thanks again, David. And I'll talk to you later. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jay. Well, no, David, I don't want to keep you uh, any longer here. I, I did just have one personal question, mainly because it's so much with um, kind of what I work with. But um, for me, Stellar and the, basically the fully open source Ripple. Um, and I'm curious there with Ripple's kind of designation there, you know, they've always been for profit in a for profit company. Um, Stellar has always been nonprofit. And I, I think they've been as transparent as they can, but, but what does that difference make between being public and nonprofit kind of going through that same stage of uh, ripple? So let's go back to the first element of our, our security analysis, right? The investment of money, yeah. right? If you're not giving them cash, not a security. So just because the underlying thing could be a security, if people were buying it, and giving it to the organization that, or giving someone who's selling it. Once you take cash out of the equation, then it fails the test. It fails the test on security. Right, because it's interesting for them. It's because they do do token drops, or they have their development foundation where they give Stellar to developers. But because it is a utility token, if those developers didn't say have those lumens, they wouldn't be able to let's say run water through the pipes. Um, well, let's look back yeah. again. Like so. You're giving them to developers. What are the developers doing? Developing. Again, look back at the securities analysis. Profit and efforts of others. They're doing the work. Blows up the analysis. It's not security. Hmm. No, that, that, any cash or you're being given them in exchange for your efforts, for your labor, not security. No, that, that that's great to hear. And I, I think where I'm so interested is just the entire model that they're using being open source from the get-go, being nonprofit, it's it's pretty amazing to see what they've been able to develop, but also um, how quickly what they develop could also get institutions and corporations. And um, basically, people could get onto this technology as easily as possible um, and be compliant all at the same time, because whatever is built before them on the Stellar platform just gets right back out there to the network for others to build off of. Um, the exact oh, same model. Real innovation is going to happen, right? Yeah. Like that's where the breakthrough can happen. I can't pinpoint exactly where it's going to be, but it's going to be in one of these open source, iterative, in it to just for the love of the game kind of thing. We'll use the analysis again, like looking at the parallels with the internet, right? Like the internet building on top of HTTPS, the underlying sort of code thing. You have this thing that's built on top of the code. 
right? So now we have blockchain and we're building things on top of blockchain. The thing that gets built on top of blockchain that blows up our entire existence and revolutionizes everything, I don't know what it is. I'm not a coder. That's not my job. But somebody out there sitting on their laptop tapping away for the love of the game, that person and 4,500 of their best friends in their little community, that's where it's going to get built. Yeah. No, that, that's amazing. And it's amazing to think through and even see a lot of that technology flowing. Um, but awesome. No, th thank you so much for taking the time to to come on and explain this. And yeah, again, in this space, it's so new to everybody. It, it's great to actually have an expert being being able to chime in. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you, pleasure chatting with you, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, stay, stay safe. And uh, again, thanks again. I, I don't know if you know, if anything ever would come up or maybe you would want some technical analysis or whatever it may be, um, I love doing it. And I, I wish I could say that or it's really just my spare time and trying to now make a living off of what I've normally done in my spare time. So, again, if, if I ever could be of help, I'd love to. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much, man. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Take care. See ya. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, I wanted to put in a special outro here. Uh, a lot has happened since we initially recorded this almost two weeks ago now. Um, mainly that uh, it's emerging that Circle looks to be the closest thing to the United States digital dollar um, that is available. And uh, call it life rafts, if you will. Um, back to the intro's mention of um, us being able to help in a humanitarian crisis. Uh, as of right now, there are only four currencies, Algorand, Ethereum, Stellar, and Solano, that are going to be supported. And ultimately, um, Circle's USDC token will be available on those native blockchains. Um, what this means is if you plan on investing or holding and cashing out to US dollars, um, you will have to make sure that you purchase USDC through those own native blockchains. Uh, so please keep your keep hodling, um, but make sure that you're you're holding on to those assets on their own native chain. Do not hold them on an exchange, um, and ensure that you keep those secret um, encryption keys truly secret to only yourself. Um, that'll ensure that when uh, when Circle is up and ready, um, it'll essentially become the new clearinghouse for all wire transfers, both overseas and um, and nationally. So again, please make sure that you hold your tokens on their native blockchain and that will allow you in the future uh, to make sure you can abide by all tax laws as well as make sure that you're compliant. Um, so with that being said, uh, good luck. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this space continues to change drastically um, at the pace of everything. Thanks for listening.